to the David Suisa podcast. Today, glad to have Gina Nahai, novelist. Her books have been translated in more than 12 languages. She teaches at the Master of Literary Writing at the University of Southern California. It's great to have you here, Gina. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, you know, you live in the world of fiction, and our readers live in the world of nonfiction. In fact, we are inundated by nonfiction. We pick up the New York Times and we watch CNN and everything we see all day long is nonfiction. True stories of our president, true stories of what's happening in Israel, true stories of what's happening everywhere around the world and inside our communities. At the Jewish Journal, everything we do is nonfiction. It's stories of people in LA, stories of what's happening in the community. And you live in the world of your imagination. I've always been fascinated by that because you're a novelist. So you, 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 you create stories in your mind. Is this something that you've always had growing up, this idea of using your imagination to write rather than sort of, you know, telling, being a journalist and just telling true stories? Yeah. Actually, I grew up wanting to be a journalist and... I would say 90% of what I write is uh, nonfiction turned into fiction. When I taught uh, writing, uh, I used to tell my students that uh, the difference between fiction and nonfiction is that nonfiction tells you what happened. Fiction tells you why it happened. And so the basis for fiction is always reality. But how do you make sense of, a, of uh, that reality? How do you organize it and or even reorder it in a way that uh, that creates some meaning that 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 uh, um, that imparts some sort of understanding about the world and about those events that's the art of fiction um, so I read a great deal <laughs> of the New York Times Washington Post a Jewish journal and every other publication myself uh, Every day I, I read a lot of history. I do a lot of research for every one of my books. But in the end, um, the only way really to deal with all of it, the only way to stay sane, I think, is to escape into one's imagination. And I did that always uh, as a child. I think um, like, uh, growing up in Iran, uh, uh, life was traumatic on a daily basis in a way that I don't think most Americans have, have, have experienced. And, um, and escaping into the world of imagination was, was definitely a coping mechanism. That's so interesting because most people go in a different direction. So we, we start in the same place. We read the same stories in the New York Times and in the media. And for most of us, we just dig in even deeper into the reality of these stories. And in your case, you have the same starting point, but you just go into your imagination. It seems that your, uh, your approach is probably healthier for your sanity. Well, I mean, for either that or I'm completely insane and just don't know it, uh, which, is also, uh, which is also a possibility. You know, uh, it's uh, an impulse. It's not a decision that I make. Uh, it's just uh, everything that I hear, everything that I see, you know, people's conversations uh, uh, that I even overhear, little anecdotes that, that, that might just 
be totally irrelevant within the context of a larger conversation, all of that sparks something in my head that eventually, at some point, will lead into uh, into a story. And you take notes? You take lots of notes? If you go to a party at night and then you meet these characters? No, but I pay attention. I pay attention to people's conversations. I pay attention to a lot of the throwaway comments that, that people make because that's what really reveals uh, sort of the inner workings of people's characters. I'll uh, have to be careful with my throwaway comments then. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I mean, I think we all do that, but for writers, maybe we make m more hay out of it than... Uh, right, because when somebody makes a throwaway comment, they're not conscious of it. Yeah. It's the real... Yeah, right? The, 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 the unguarded moments. And that, that says a lot about a person. So that said, you know, so much of the news, so much in the media nowadays is not news, is not fact, is opinion. And a lot of it is opinion based on uh, uh, very little knowledge. So watching CNN or uh, reading so, so, so many publications, all you're getting is someone else's uh, opinions, which... Uh, it's a waste of time. It's interesting, though, because for the Jewish Journal, you've written nonfiction mm -hmm. in your column. Yeah. And it's it strikes me from what I've been hearing from you today that this ability to observe what's in front of everyone, but that you're able to see it. You wrote a very controversial column uh, a couple months ago mm -hmm. uh, during the Me Too movement as it mm -hmm. was starting. And when I, when I first received it, it struck me that this is a column written by somebody who really observes intensely. So you, there was nothing new in front of you. You were seeing what, it, what was in front of everybody, yeah. but you saw something different. And I'm wondering if that's from your ability to see and to imagine. Can you share with our listeners? What your yeah, column was about? That was about uh, uh, you know it was in the uh, at the height of the Me Too movement and everybody coming out with with all kinds of allegations and I am the first I'm the first to to say that uh, among the first to to uh, to accept that people who sexually harass. Uh, uh, either their employees or anybody should be uh, should be held to account that they should be punished that there is no excuse for it absolutely not that said I think that what I what I observed what I noted was something that's uh, that that we've all seen but many people are are hesitant to to speak about which is that in a lot of uh, cases, the so-called victims are maybe actual willing victims that we have all known and we all know people, not just women, women and men, who use their sexuality as, as a currency, um, who try to parlay that chemistry between, uh, uh, between two people into some level of, uh, of, of success professionally. And in those cases then, for the person to turn around and attack their so the so-called perpetrator of the sexual harassment or, or violence, I think that is wrong. I think there's there has to be a distinction made between uh, somebody who willingly trades on their sexuality and someone who doesn't. Uh, 
So that's what I wrote about. And um, a lot of women were very upset about that. Uh, some men also got, got very upset about it. Um, what, what did you hear? What I heard was that the problem is that we live in a world where in order to achieve success, mostly women, I mean, nowadays also men, but women have mostly had to trade on their sexuality. Well, to some extent, that is true. But to some extent, I think that we, the women, are responsible for creating that atmosphere as well. So again, uh, there, there are all kinds of shades of, uh, of gray between, uh, between act of absolute sexual violence and uh, something that, that flirting. took place. Flirting. Uh, Awkward flirting. Awkward flirting or bringing in one's sexuality into play as a um, again, as a as a as a currency, there's a difference if you do that willingly, mm -hmm. or if you've uh, or, or or something's been imposed on you. Uh, for well, example, I think I, if I can just interrupt, sure. I think uh, in the case where it's used willingly, uh, my my hunch is that we just did not hear from these women, because if it's used willingly, then probably they wouldn't need to accuse anyone because it was sort of. That, that's the one thing I was wondering during the whole beginning of the movement is the woman we did not hear about, where it just sort of, like you said, it was used as currency, and I guess they got what they wanted. Both sides got what they wanted, and that was the end of the story. And they, those women's voices never really came out because they got what they wanted. There was no grievance, it seems to me. But you're talking about a third category. Well, well, you use it willingly, and you make an accusation. And you make an accusation. Okay. So, so look, you know, you you go out on a, you're driving in a car with a powerful Hollywood producer or Hollywood uh, figure, okay, and they, he take he goes into your apartment, okay, and this is a, a real case of somebody who would uh, a celebrity, and uh, he forces himself upon you, and you feel like you really cannot resist you sh because it's not good for your career. Okay, and that's that's uh, horrible. But then a few months later, you find yourself in a car with that person again, and you go back to your apartment again, and you're alone with him again, and he forces himself on you again. Now, this second time, you still don't act because uh, you are concerned about the consequences for your career. At that point, I would say the hell with the career, you need to stand up to the person. Now, if you don't stand up to the person, then um, I would say you are partly responsible for what happens the second time around. The first time you didn't know, the second time you do know. And so in, uh, is it uh, okay for the, uh, for, uh, for the other care, uh, for the man to force himself on you? No, but did you have uh, something that could have that you could have done about it? Yes, and did you not do that because you stood to gain something from it? Yes. So there's a distinction there, right? There is, and I think we one of the positive things we can say about the movement is it's made it a lot easier for women to stand up and say something. You know, I think. It's made it easier for women to complain about things that have happened in the past. I don't know, you know, once all this blows over, uh, 
and the media becomes in, interested in other in other issues. I don't know to what extent things will really change. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Um, I think power always has a way of uh, of winning in 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 these kinds of issues, and the more powerful the the perpetrator, I think the harder it's going to be for, for, for anyone to, to bring these kinds of things up. Now, your novels have dealt uh, with the, the Persian condition in America in many ways. Uh, when you see something like the Me Too movement, does it ever strike you as something you might want to write a novel about? No. <laughs> I write a lot about uh, a lot about the condition of women in uh, not just in Iran but in more fundamentalist countries in uh, in in the third world in condition of women within more you know in more religious uh, societies and uh, where this me too movement uh, is interesting to me is uh, where is in comparison to what happens to women in in those other societies. To me, a, a woman who will resist a, 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 a sexual advance or, or a sexual attack in a place like Pakistan or even in Iran, uh, <laughs> the penalty for that will be that she, if, if a woman either resists a man, his rapist, so to speak, or complains about him, she's the one who will go to jail, not the man, not the perpetrator. Right, so you take that and then you compare it to the actress in in Hollywood or New York City who is afraid to say no to a powerful uh, entertainment figure for the second time because she's concerned about her career being damaged. You know, it, 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 I feel like here we have so much more power, and we should be able to use that power to stand up to people. And if we don't do that, then we are partly to blame. You know, I can, that could be a wonderful column for you to write, if I don't mind <laughs> saying. Yeah, where you have somebody, I, I heard the expression the other day, first world problems and third right. world problems. And that's a perfect contrast right there. Yeah, I mean, at some point you have to have uh, the gumption to get up and walk out of the room. And if enough people did that, and if enough people did not use the proverbial casting couch, if enough women didn't use the proverbial casting couch into stardom, then uh, uh, then I think uh, we would have a much smaller sort of uh, issue with, uh, 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 with sexual harassment than, than we do right now. I got in trouble a year ago when... They had the Women's March, mm-hmm. and maybe I read too much of what you wrote, but I wrote a column on how about having a march for women who are not allowed to march, for women right. who can't march, for right. the women who are jailed in, in Iran and Pakistan yeah. because they were raped and jailed, right? So right. I, And I got in trouble because, you know, a lot of my friends on the left, my feminist friends, thought that I was putting them down, and I, I wasn't. I was just saying, what about the other women who cannot yeah, march? Yeah, you know, there's this sort of orthodoxy of, uh, uh, of opinion uh, out here. I mean, I'm a liberal. Uh, I hope, I, I believe I'm a liberal. And yet, uh, I'm outraged at the sort of intolerance that some liberals have these days, or mm, have had for a while, uh, the sort of intolerance for any sort of uh, uh, dissent 
within the ranks. So again, to this question of the, the, the Me Too issue, uh, a, a writer, a, a Native American writer, you know, well-known, very successful, whom I do not know personally at all, he was accused by some people of uh, sexual harassment. And uh, somebody started this campaign online, you know, uh, his publisher, uh, I believed, his publisher was getting pressure to cancel his new book, he was about to lose his job, uh, his teaching job, you know, people were returning his books. And all I did was uh, I asked, I posed a question on, on one of these forums. Has this person, has this particular writer responded to any of these accusations? Uh, has he said yes, no, I did it, I, don't, I didn't do it? Has, he, has anybody produced any evidence for or against him? The mere posing of this question got me so in so much trouble with people. Uh, you know, I was sort of banned from Facebook conversations. I was uh, uh, people writing me nasty notes about how are you, how can you defend this guy? And all I was saying is, you know, before we ruin somebody's career entirely, let's, let's see if uh, they have a word to say in their own defense or if they've admitted to all of these wrongdoings. So, um, yeah, one has to be careful about intolerance on both ends. Well, it seems that, you know, there's a certain fragility that's entered uh, the atmosphere where it's become more and more difficult to handle views that you disagree with. And I, I'm seeing it a lot on uh, college campuses where, you know, you have the, the right to not be offended and you need your safe space and everything's a microaggression and what happened to the era when we can handle dissension and we, we can sit down and disagree with each other without, you know, getting, asking you to leave the room? We're asking each other to leave the room. It's not just that I disagree with you, it's that I'm rejecting you. Something has happened to American society that is really unattractive. Yeah, you know, uh what I do is I, I cannot abide Fox News or basically anyone on, uh, on, on it. But every day uh, I watch Fox News uh, because I would like to hear what the other side is hearing and what, what the other side believes. Um, I don't watch or MSNBC or CNN anymore because uh, uh, I, I'm tired of having or I do not want to have my own opinions repeated to me over and over, right? What you want is, uh, uh, is intelligent conversation that takes into account both sides. Well, you know, okay, Gina, you're, you're forcing me now to make a plug for our daily roundtable every Already? morning. Oh, Please go ahead. <laughs> because that, that's where we came from. You know, that was the whole idea is we wanted to give people three different views of the same story, the yeah. same issue. And surprisingly, people are really responding well to it because they're hearing views that they would not otherwise hear. Because, you know, some, sometimes I get a sense that it's all about feeling good and the Fox viewer will see Fox because he knows exactly what he's going to get right. and it makes him feel good right. and vice versa. So this is becoming about feeling good rather than, you know, how could I learn something new from somebody with a different point of view? And in the Jewish community, it's becoming very, very difficult to have civil conversation. 
around issues that we disagree with. I, I don't have any solutions. Do you? I think the solution is to be an equal opportunity offender and try to try to. I mean, if, if you have offended at least a third of uh, your audience, uh, or, or 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 manage to to uh, to raise their ire, or 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 at least have a third of your audience disagree with you, then I think you're probably doing a pretty good job. Well, you have you seem to have a curiosity gene, right? Maybe that's your novelist curiosity gene. From you're probably the only liberal I know who puts on Fox News. Uh, I mean, okay, yeah, I don't, I, I don't enjoy it, but it is fascinating to me to see, uh, to see how the other side views the world. And what's it like in you? I mean, <clears throat> I don't want to pigeonhole you as being in the Persian community only because you're mm -hmm. not. But since you've written so much about your experience in the Persian community here in L.A., yeah. what's it like when you get into these sort of disagreements and political discussions and pro-Trump against Trump? How, how crazy Yeah, you get? know, I, I don't get into those the, this, uh, conversations anymore because uh, there is very little that I learn from people. I do listen. You know, I, I listen when people, the pro-Trump people or, or more conservative people uh, have something to say that they want to share. But I don't argue with anyone anymore. I even, you know, our own Shabbat table, we do not discuss politics anymore because uh, half of us voted for Trump and the other half uh, voted for Hillary. All right, now that I have to interrupt <laughs> you because I love what you just said. Uh, I've been doing that for a few years now. No politics at the Shabbat table. Yeah. How long has that happened with you? Is uh, that a real rule, by the way? Do you really enforce it? Uh, we enforce it because, you know, half my family has, is, is, uh, has become Orthodox, you know, Ashkenazi-style Orthodox. Uh, we didn't have Orthodoxy, Orthodox Judaism in Iran, but since uh, since we've moved here, a lot of Iranian Jews have become sort of like you know the Hasidic style type of uh, type of Orthodox, and so uh, they obviously are so much more conservative. And we've had that rule since the George W. Bush administrations. We ha we had it. We started it when Bush and Kerry were counting the votes. And we've just enforced it more and more since then. Even, you know, especially if it comes to the issue of Israel and, you know, is there a Palestinian issue, two-state solution, what to do there? Just You can't you know. win. No. You can't win. Now, um, this new movement of uh, Orthodox Hasidic Persian Jews, has that created some kind of a friction with the with the old school, with their parents and with the rest of the community? <sighs> It, it, it's created a real, not not a friction so much as a, as a real separation. Those of us who are not uh, inclined toward that kind of uh, that, that kind of uh, religiosity understand the other side and respect the other side, and uh, you know we we can see how they can find, how, how they find certain solace or draw certain strength or certain uh, sense of certainty from that kind of orthodoxy. Um, that said, it's really difficult for our, uh, for our lives to sort of have anything in common anymore. And so there is this, this unfortunately, there, there's a kind of separation. 
within families, uh, most of the the uh, parents of uh, younger people who have become very orthodox have had to have adopt, uh, adapted. You know, they, they've started, you know, even though they, even if they weren't keeping, you know, the two kosher kitchens and two kosher everything, they've started doing that because they don't want to lose their children. Um, uh, so, so it's not an it's not a war, by any means. But 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 there is a there is a bit of a you know um, distance between the two sides. W- where does it come from? You touched on it a little bit before. Where do you think? Why do you think you have this movement of uh, young Persian Jews who become a lot more religious? Is it just what you said—a search for certainty? Where do you think it comes from? I think it's it's. Uh, it's um, it, it gives a great sense of security to people, you know, knowing exactly what you what you have to do at any given hour of, uh, of the day or night, uh, knowing that uh, you you your children exactly where your children will go to school, what they will study, uh, knowing that they will get married at a young age, that they will have children. Uh, you know, if, oh, if, if you stay within the community and follow certain rules, that, that, that your life is pretty much mapped out for you, that, that gives a great sense of security. Um, How about meaning, sense of purpose? Gives, you know, I mean, it, it, I, I think that uh, that's more of a, uh, it's more of an illusion. And what I've seen in, in, in my own family members is that that sense of purpose it sort of lasts for a while, maybe for a decade, and then slowly you, you begin to, to, to realize that, no, uh, the meaning you, were, you, you thought that you had landed on is, uh, is just as elusive as for anybody else out there. It's so interesting. There was a prominent essay a few years ago that spoke about the movement of Jews becoming orthodox in, in, in America, and they called it, uh, he called it social orthodoxy, mm. where, you know, uh, so much of the intention was based around being in a community where your life is mapped out right. for you, yeah. just like, like you said, as opposed to really believing, you know, doing it because you have a renewed belief in God or those kind of more innocent ideas, that there's a real concrete sort of rationale for why a lot of people become religious. And one of them is the fact that their life is more mapped out and they know exactly what to do. And that's rarely talked about. Yeah. No, I mean, I I see that. I see that very clearly. Uh, It also, I think, that imparts a certain sense of of, uh, having control over the world and over, over others. Uh, that we otherwise don't have. Um, it's as if they are armed with uh, the a, truth with a capital T. Right. Yeah, yeah, and and that's their guiding force and 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 their greatest motivation. And um, uh, you know, I'm I know that they they believe that sincerely, and uh, and it, that must be empowering. Yeah, and also I think it's a uh, reinforces self-esteem. It builds self-esteem. Right. It gives you a sense of yeah. sense of identity. Anyhow, so tell us about the new book you're working on. Yeah. So the new book is the story of uh, um, 
a, a, a girl who is called the Tehran child. And uh, the Tehran children were a group of uh, 800 and something Jewish Polish orphans who ended up in Iran during, in 1942 during the Second World War. Um, the reason they were called the Tehran children is that they were uh, um, sent to, to Iran along with another 120,000 Poles, some Jewish, some not, uh, through Siberia. What happened at the beginning of the war, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact between Stalin and Hitler divided up Poland into, into German half and a Soviet half. In the Soviet half, Stalin deported over a million Poles from Poland to labor camps in Siberia, where, and, and it was the same sort of thing that as, as uh, people in the Holocaust uh, experienced, which was these cattle cars overstuffed with humans. What uh, year was that? Started in, 19, in September of 1939, uh, and then it, through 1940. Um, so in Poland, you had Jews going to concentration camps and Jews going to Siberia at the same time. Yep, to labor camps in Siberia. Uh, a lot of the a lot of Polish Jews escaped from the German half of Poland, the the, the half of Poland that was dominated, uh, that was controlled by Germany, escaped to the Soviet half, thinking that they will be safer under Soviet control. And they ended up getting rounded up and and shipped off to uh, to labor camps as well. Many, many, many of them died of uh, starvation, exposure to the elements, hard labor. Um, in the end, when uh, Germany attacked the Soviet Union in 1942, uh, um, Stalin realized that he needed a fighting force and that the Poles who were in these labor camps could... Uh, um, at least some of them who were in fighting shape, that they could uh, uh, join the Polish army in exile under General Anders. It was called the Anders Army. And this was Jews and non-Jews. Jews and non-Jews, right? Um, so he, quote-unquote, gave them amnesty. Now, those Poles object to the word amnesty, rightly so, because they hadn't done anything wrong for which they should be, uh, they should be granted amnesty. But basically... He opened up the labor camps, and the, the camp uh, uh, leaders just released these people into the wilds of, the, of, of Siberia, entire families, old people, sick people, wow. little children, the wilds of Siberia, and said, off you go. You're on your own. You're on your own. No map, no food, no clothes, nothing. So they started walking south. No, because they knew that the more south they go, the warmer the climate would become. And then along the way, they started to hear that in Uzbekistan, in, uh, in Tashkent and Samarkand, that there is more food because the climate was better. Now, this is all the way south, 3,000 kilometers from Siberia. These people walked oh 3,000 kilometers from Siberia to Samarkand. The Jews... The, 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 the ones who had survived all the way up there ended up putting most of their children into orphanages or there were a lot of kids who survived where the parents had died who ended up in, uh, in uh, Tashkent and other parts of Uzbekistan 
just living like animals on the street. At this point, the Jewish agency by 1942 got wind of all of these Jewish orphans just living wandering. in the wild, wandering, and sent some representatives who went all around Uzbekistan into orphanages, churches, uh, homes, uh, and, uh, anywhere that they could find Jewish kids and rounded them up. In a lot of cases, the kids, just like in, in other parts of Europe, were afraid to admit that they were Jewish. A lot of times they were betrayed by Christian kids who dislike the Jews. And don't forget that in addition to all the hardships that the Poles collectively experienced, Jewish Poles also had the problem of other Poles disliking them. And so there are all kinds of horror stories. For example, on the cattle cars, uh, Poles would throw out Jewish babies to, make, to, to keep them quiet because if Jewish babies cried so much, the Poles would just pick the kid up and throw it off uh, the cattle car uh, because they could do that to Jews. So the Jewish agency gathered all these kids up. Eventually, the Anders army gathered 120,000 Poles, men, women, children, uh, and uh, about 1,000 Jewish kids, and they put them on ships from uh, Krasnovodosk in uh, Soviet Russia on the northern part of the Caspian Sea. They crossed the Caspian, went to Iran for refuge. So How many? That, that was Jews and non-Jews? Jews and non-Jews. And there was 1,000 Jews among them? There were 1,000 Jewish orphans. Mm. Uh, and, then that, and then there were Jewish families or the, you know, accompanied, unaccompanied adults, Jewish families. But the Tehran children were these 1,000 kids who, by the time they actually reached Iran, because the conditions on the ships were so horrible and typhus was rampant on these ships— by the time they reached Iran, there was about only 870 of them left. The rest either died on the ships of these kids or they died soon after arriving of, of, of illness, um, soon after arriving in Iran. So the Jewish agency gathered these kids in the um, Caspian port of Pahlavi, drove them on trucks into Tehran, and they stayed in Tehran from August of 1942 till February of 1943. At the time, Great Britain did not allow anybody to go to Palestine. And there was this great campaign on the part of the Jewish agency and a group of Iranian Jews, prominent Iranian Jews, who had very good connections with the British to enable these children to, to be sent to Palestine. And there's a whole saga of... Did they all go? All 870? In the end, most of them went. If you were adopted by Iranian Jewish families and stayed in Iran, <clears throat> if you eventually found family members that they were, uh, they, they were released to, uh, most of them went, um, and I think about 130 of them died in the War of Independence. They fought in the War of Independence, 
and died. And uh, the rest, uh, um, you know, most of them are not living anymore. But Do you know of any who are still living? Yes, I know of. I actually interviewed one in, last year in Israel. She lives on a kibbutz. And I have a few others lined up that I'm supposed to go back and talk to in, to in Israel. One of the interesting things that, thing that happened was that there was a lawsuit that lasted 11 years by these children asking for Holocaust compensation for the, uh, you know, the, the, the Holocaust uh, compensation fund. What is that thing? You know? Reparation. Reparation, I'm sorry. Reparation fund. Uh, this lawsuit lasted for 11 years. These kids, because at the time that their reparations were given out, these kids had no one to look out for them and didn't even know that they would be entitled to some kind of compensation. And technically, it wasn't clear whether they were Holocaust survivors because they, having been in Soviet Union instead of Germany, uh, the question was, were they in the Holocaust? And so this lawsuit went on and went all the way up to the Supreme Court of, uh, of Israel. And in the end, they each got about $6,000, mm. um, which was, you know, completely a, a symbolic comp compensation. But I'm in touch with the lawyer who represented these Jews for, for, for 11 years. And Among those you've ma met, how much of the Iranian culture did they incorporate in their lives? They, are they still just Polish? You know, uh, there the ones, I mean, I knew some in Iran. My mother's uncle was married to one, and she stayed in Iran, and she was what you call a femme fatale. She sort of uh, ruined the lives of many men. Her name was Lala. Um, there was another woman, uh, a beautiful woman that everybody knew as Madame Suzanne, who was from the, uh, she, she, she was a Cohen, and she married an Iranian Cohen. It must have been a culture shock. You know, from all of the accounts, and I've read so many memoirs, I've read so many interviews, what they all say is that it was the, the most beautiful experience they had had, that the Iranian people, this was in the middle of the war, Iran was an occupied country by the Allies, there was massive famine going on in Iran, and yet, they were so embraced by the Iranian people, and uh, and they were uh, they uh, they felt so safe and so at home and so welcome that uh, I don't think any of them. I've never heard any of them say that they had a difficult time of it. Well, I think it also depends on the age, because if you're if you're young and you're four, five, six, I would imagine that they would take on a lot of the Iranian culture, you know, as they, uh, they get older. Yeah, yeah. But the reception that they got, you know, there, there, there are these stories and there's actually pictures of uh, one of one of the trains that uh, that kind of drives into into the city of Isfahan because the poles 120,000 right they were sent around the country into refugee camps all around the country and uh, the the train is arriving and there are all these hungry starving poles 
hanging out the windows of the trains, and there are mobs of Iranians, and they start throwing things at these at these people. And at first, everyone's terrified that because of their experience in the Soviet Union on these trains, they're all terrified. And then they realize that these people are throwing oranges at them. You know, I got to confess that I just betrayed my first world uh, sensibility here because I totally forgot. When I, when I made the comment on culture shock, I was thinking as if we're living today. But the truth is, these people that you're talking about barely, barely survived. Exactly. The most harrowing events that could have lasted years and months yeah. and walking for months. So you have to think that by the time they get to a place where they feel safe and people are throwing oranges at them, the last thing on their mind is the idea of culture shock. Oh, yeah. And the first thing on their mind is, oh, my God, I just may survive. Yeah. Yeah. There are there are pictures of people who um, who are kneeling and in, in, in uh, on the beach in the Caspian. They're kneeling on the ground and kissing the, the, the ground because they finally reached land after mm. that harrowing trip. Uh, I mean, there, there's just uh, so many individual stories. You know, Stalin, unfortunately, said the death of one man is a tragedy. The death of millions is a statistic, right? So we say 120,000 Poles or we say 1,000 Jewish orphans, and, and it's just a number. But every one of them has the most uh, epic journey, uh, epic life story. Gina, how did you come across this story? Um, I had heard for years about... Uh, uh, v- interesting thing is that very few Iranians even know about these polls, except the, uh, the generation was actually there to, uh, when they arrived, who were adults when these people arrived. But I had heard about them here and there for a long, long time. And then at some point I just thought, let me see what this Tehran children's story was. And... You know, it's like the rabbit hole. The minute you hear the first little bit, you it's just irresistible. It just pulls you right in. Those 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 uh, th- those individual tales of how these people. Uh, first of all, you know, Poland was thirty percent Jewish when this happened. All the, uh, uh, at, at the beginning of the war, I mean, one third of Poland was Jews, and um, when you you read about their lives at the beginning of the war and how they had to to go from town to town. They became refugees within Poland, going from the eastern part to the western part and then going back, sort of trying to stay one step ahead of the Germans and then one step ahead of the Russians. And then this journey into Russia, these images of people from malnutrition, when they opened their mouth to talk, their teeth would fall out. Just this one image, right, is haunting enough. And so I just couldn't resist. And the more I read about it, the more I talk about it, the, the more I realize that not enough people know this. Have you met uh, any scholars in the field that know? You know, there are no scholars in the field. Here's another thing. Um, there are a couple of people who've made documentaries. Um, there are a couple of dozen people who have written articles about it. But... Uh, Interesting thing enough is that before 2004, you can't even find anything written about it before 2004. And then there are little bits, you know, in the sort of the Holocaust uh, Museum uh, uh, 
stuff online in uh, Jewish historical society and stuff, but very little. And there's nobody who's actually studied this as 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 an academic uh, or historical uh, piece. Do you know if any of them are living in L.A.? Any of the survivors? I I <laughs> a car salesman in Beverly Hills told me that his father was a Tehran child. And because I did not buy a car from him, he'd promised to put me in touch with him, with the dad. Because I did not buy a car from him, he's just forbidden his dad to talk to me. So he's the only one that I know. Madame Suzanne Cohen, whose children actually recently um, put together a book about uh, her life and her origins and her journey, um, her kids and grandkids live in L.A. And she lived in L.A. She died a few years ago. Or maybe we can get somebody to buy a car from this guy. <laughs> I know. What kind of, no, but I'm going to go to Israel soon. What kind of car did you reject? Uh, it was a Mercedes. Ah, okay. Too German. <laughs> Too German, yeah. Uh, well, you know, it's ironic because we started this podcast on using the imagination and talk about nonfiction, and it turns out now you're working on a book that's almost the, the epitome of, of nonfiction, a true, true, true story that but people don't know. But it's a fictionalized know. version of, I mean, the characters are invented, and um, it's going to be a novel. Right, right. And, but th the story itself is just yeah. incredible because so many people just don't know about it. Anyways, we'll look forward to it. Are they called the Tehran children? Yeah. Because it's interesting how the word Polish... Poland is not in their name. It's just no, the they're called children. the Tehran children. And then s separately from this, uh, this is not about Jewish kids, but the city of Isfahan in Iran, because it's so many Polish kids were sent to, uh, Polish refugee kids were sent to Isfahan. The city was called a city of Polish children. Mm. Well, Gina Nahai, thank you very much. Thank it's great, you. great to have you here. It's been a pleasure.